This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Archaeology. I'm your host, Samuel Pfister, and joining me today is Dr. Allison Mickle, here to talk about her recent book, Why Those Who Shovel Are Silent, out now from University Press of Colorado. Allison is Assistant Professor of Anthropology in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Lehigh University, and a core faculty member in Global Studies and the Center for Global Islamic Studies. Her research focuses on how local communities have impacted and been affected by the long history of archaeological work in the Middle East. Currently a fellow at the American Center of Research in Jordan, Allison is joining us today from Amman. Allison, welcome. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Yeah, really great to have you on the show. So uh, tell us a little bit about why those who shovel are silent, a little bit about the book. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, the culmination of six years of ethnographic and oral history research. Um, It focuses on the history of archaeology in both Jordan and Turkey, uh, but really aims to talk about the history of archaeology in the Middle East more broadly. Um, And its focus in particular is on labor in archaeology. My own experience in archaeology was that we would work very closely with locally hired laborers, Um, but uh, they weren't always credited or mentioned in final publications, um, and that seemed to be the norm in archaeology. Uh, And so I wanted to do a research project that really focused on them uh, and their contributions to archaeology. And so the book focuses on Chadalhuk in Turkey and Petra in Jordan, uh, and specifically uh, the Temple of the Winged Lions site within Petra, Jordan. Um, And I did interviews with uh, site workers at both those sites, current and former, and tried to understand what expertise they had about archaeology. And in the book, I lay out the expertise that I have found that they developed from years of working in archaeology. Um, In Petra, especially, there are people who have worked for 40 or 50 years on different archaeological projects. Um, in Chattelhug, there are also people with decades of experience as well, um, not necessarily quite that longevity, but but also these like you know, long careers in archaeology. Um, and so people definitely have developed expertise in archaeology at both of these sites. But what I kept finding was that people would deny that they had expertise anytime I tried to name it. So we would have these long conversations where they would tell me about dating Nabataean pottery or how far you have to dig before you find a destruction layer or, you know, identifying lithics, um, you know, obsidian sources, uh, Chattelhuk. 
And then when I would try and name what they had shared with me as expertise, they would say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I don't have expertise. I'm just a simple worker. And I found this at both sites. And so the book really digs into why that is. And what I argue is that archaeologists uh, at both sites have um, inadvertently created uh, economies for workers where it is actually more lucrative for them, more financially rewarding for workers to pretend like they are ignorant about archaeological sites, to protest that they're simple, uh, to claim a lack of knowledge about those sites. Uh, and so I, I go through in the book the different ways in which that has arisen, the ways in which that has occurred, the long history of labor dynamics in archaeology in the Middle East and around the world. Um, I don't think that it's a hopeless situation, though. And so in the book, I also hope to kind of uh, shine a light on a path forward um, and suggest some ways that we could actually leave that legacy behind and, um, you know, produce better science uh, by encouraging workers to share expertise that they demonstrably have rather than encouraging them to hide it. So like you mentioned, your research draws on your participation in two archaeological research projects in the Middle East, the Temple of the Winged Lion Cultural Resource Management at Petra and the Chatelhiyuk uh, Research Project in Turkey. So can you tell us a little bit more about those projects and your participation in those projects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't. I want to be careful not to frame uh, the project as comparative because I really did not intend it that way. Um, I'm not trying to say you know that these are necessarily comparable or that that we can um, learn something by by laying them against one another. Um, mm -hmm. These projects actually have really similar histories, and so I thought it, instead of a comparative story, it could kind of be a complementary story because both sites, uh, Petra and Chatelhuk, are World Heritage sites. Um, both sites, the Temple of the Winged Lions and Chattelhook specifically, uh, began excavations in the 60s or 70s. Um, and both sites today are the are are, are places where um, archaeologists are trying to uh, lead community engagement initiatives. So both at the Temple of the Winged Lions and the Chattelhook, the contemporary project, place a lot of emphasis on social outreach and community engagement and trying to bring people from the local community into the project. And so I thought by looking at both of these projects, we could learn something about that long history of archaeological work because uh, there were like 50, 60 years of work uh, in the end at, the, at these two sites. Um, the sort of uh, what was helpful about looking at these two sites also is that the Temple of the Winged Lions had a very long-term project that started in the 70s, and the Chattelhook Research Project had a long-term project that began in the 90s. And so those two sites had these large um, archives built up about what had been found at the two sites during these long periods. Um, they both had these shorter engagements at the Temple of the Wing Lions more recently and at Chattelhook more uh, early on with James Mellart. But I really wanted to focus on those long-term projects uh, and what they were doing. So at the Temple, Temple of the Winged Lions, I uh, did a lot of oral historical research um, I did a lot of archival research. I went through all the site notebooks from the project. Um, and then on the contemporary project, I served as a, sort of an ethnographic consultant. Um, I, uh, I did uh, interviews with the local community about the, the current project and what was going on with it, and then helped to sort of shape some of those community outreach uh, initiatives that were going on there. Um, and then at Chattelhook, I served as an excavator on the team. And so I dug in the Chattelhook buildings. Um, I, I led 
you know, students working there. And I also worked with the workers that we had hired at Shadowhook. Um, so I was both a participant and a uh, sort of um, ethnographic researcher, outside researcher on, on these two projects. Um, so I was able to kind of uh, both have an insider view of what was going on in these sites and really have that in-depth understanding of what was coming out of these sites, the material artifacts, how the work was going. Um, and, you know, not to downplay like the setting, the environment, the weather, like those are things that you, I think you need to have of a site to really understand what it's like to work there. Um, so yeah, I both was working on the two sites, but also delving into the archival material from them and doing these oral historical interviews with previous site workers there. Great. And, and during your research and during your participation in these projects, you, you were obviously interacting with the communities of, of local site workers and the communities of the people who lived around these sites. But was there ever a moment when, um, you, know, you know, was there a moment when this, this uh, research project idea really came about? Um, when you, did you ever have that sort of aha moment when you, you decided that this was a, an inquiry really worth pursuing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there were sort of two separate aha moments. I think the first one, um, I don't know, maybe it was not an aha moment. It was an aha formation, an aha transformation. Um, but I first excavated when I was 18. I went to Kenya. Uh, I did fieldwork there. Um, and I was a very nervous excavator. I like to think I have, uh, you know, some skills now, but I didn't when I started. My walls were not straight. My floors were not flat. Um, I'm sure I was the queen of picking artifacts out of the bulk, you know, just not great, not, not great skills. I can admit it. We can all admit to the mistakes when we were 18, you know, um, we, we were all there. Yeah, we were all there. You know, I think this is the healthy uh, therapeutic release that archaeology needs is just to accept that those mistakes happen with. Uh, when you bring children to the fields, and I was a child, yeah. I, I yeah. own a it. Rite of passage is definitely picking through a plaster floor or something, and, and not realizing until you're on the other side. Exactly, absolutely. We all need to air this out. So that was me when I was 18. Also, we were excavating on a slope, and I just couldn't visualize in my head how you could excavate stratigraphically on a slope. That just didn't really make sense. I didn't know if you should excavate like with the slope or not. I, it just was very confusing to me. So. We had a locally hired uh, worker on the project named Moses, um, and uh, my kind of trench supervisor kept telling me to watch Moses and copy him and do what he did. And that was, I don't know, maybe it was an aha moment now that I'm thinking back on it, because um, I really came to that project thinking like, oh, I'm a major, you know, in anthropology. I've taken three whole classes in archaeology. Like, surely I know what I'm doing. Um, but there's no, there's no... Um, replacement for hands-on experience, which Moses had, and I didn't, and he had a lot of, and I had none of. And so, um, like I said, I'm pretty proud of my excavation skills now, and I and I really think it's largely due to Moses. Um, I switched to working in the Middle East uh, when I was an undergrad. I was studying Arabic. I was really interested in this um, region and its history, um, and I started reading about, uh, you know, re reading these early memoirs of 18th century explorers, um, and then 19th century and 20th century excavations. And I would read about entire communities that were like full of Moseses, um, were full of excavation experts with really clear technical skills and archeological knowledge. I kind of couldn't believe how many archeologists, uh, like early archeologists and early explorers would say, I never would have found this site if I hadn't talked to this guy, you know, or like, 
hmm, this guy really told us how to dig this this site. Like, wow, we didn't break anything just because he was there. But without that sort of meta critique or, or like reflexive um, understanding that like they fundamentally relied on these local communities' expertise and generosity, I should say, like willingness to um, to to uh, to divulge that information. Um, and so I, I wanted to go and see if these communities today were, um, uh, or if there were communities like these um, in other places with, with long histories of excavation. So in the archeological archives, you read about Petri's workers in Egypt who are famous for being very technically skilled. You read about the Shakratis in Iraq who are known for being very skilled. Um, and so I just, I sort of wondered if at other sites with long histories of excavation, if there were other communities like that. So that, that's how the idea of the project came about. Um, but it was frustrating when I was like, so certain that there, that these communities in Petra and in Chattelhook surely had this expertise that I could see, that I could talk to them about, um, you know, working on the site with Chattelhook, I could see the local workers I could see the skills they had. Um, and then when I would talk to them, they would just like flat out deny it. Um, so when I say there are two aha moments, I think there was the aha moment number one of like, wow, local communities who work on archeological sites for a long time have expertise. How, like what a concept, this should, should maybe be documented somehow. And then the second aha moment of realizing, um, you know, there's gotta be something going on here for all of these people who so clearly have this knowledge and skill set to deny that they do. So that's a long answer to your question, but yeah, two aha moments, I think. Great. And and so during your actual ethnographic interviews um, with these local site workers, uh, you noticed that contrary to the traditionally held notions of site workers as, un, as uninformed or as really non-participants or as just the manual laborers, um, site workers at both Petra and Chattelhiuk um, are and have been historically incredibly knowledgeable about the material and the interpretation of the site. And, and so why has their part in the archaeological process been so erased? Why, why, hasn't, why haven't more people talked about it? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I do think that the contemporary con- community engagement initiatives at Chattelhook and Petra have been attempting to redress that imbalance. Um, I think it's uh, maybe important to remember that Chattelhook did put out one thematic volume or maybe two um, where site workers were interviewed along the way and that their their direct quotes were included in the publication. Um, also at Chattelhook, uh, the long-term site guard, Sadratin Dural, um, published his memoirs of being a site guard at Chattelhook. Um, and so I do, I just, I don't, I don't want to like say wholly that no one has ever, you know, considered this or that they've completely been erased because certainly that's not the case. No, sure. Of course. Yeah. 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 I just don't want to, you know, credit where credit is due for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, but I do think in general, like structurally in our discipline, it is the norm that you might include the list of local laborers and the acknowledgements. Maybe you take a team photo, put that on the website with names um, but the sort of substantive contributions of the workers is not the focus of any sort of site report. That's, that's just not the case. There's also this long-term separation of the physical labor of archaeology and the intellectual labor of archaeology, which is a mythical separation. It's not, it's not real. Um, you know, and I think the sort of uh, very now uh, old phrase interpretation of the trap at the trowel's edge is trying to kind of um, play, uh, to 
disrupt that myth, uh, to challenge it, to um, make it clear that there is there is no actual separation between physical and intellectual work. But I think this is a long held belief uh, in archaeology, and certainly people have written about how we've designed recording strategies to um, be able to kind of uh, make the make the physical work of of actual excavation. Um, seem rote and seem unskilled, uh, whereas what happens down the line in the labs and in the publications is uh, more traditionally seen as highly skilled. Um, and so I think that that sort of div- uh, that division between the material and the intellectual, you know, the physical and the and the scholarly or academic, is underlying a lot of this erasure at both sites, uh, which isn't any one person's fault or, um, you know. It's, it's a long legacy that we're still contending with. And still a lot of people are working to um, challenge and uh, maybe even demolish today. So in uh, what ways do the site workers' recollections and, and experiences working for these digs um, from their oral histories um, about the discoveries and, and interpretations, how do, how do they actually differ from that of the archaeological staff at these two sites? Yeah, absolutely. Um so, uh, so the difference between the site workers' recollections and what what um, the excavators record uh, is definitely more stark at at the Temple of the Winged Lions at the older project, the one that began in the '70s, which makes sense. Uh, this was a site where um, pretty extreme hierarchies were recognized, and you know, for, were part of the structure of the project. Um, uh, the site workers reported being sent away anytime anything important was found. Um, and this was this was a project in the 70s that did not have the ethos of community engagement because it predates that becoming like a big push in the discipline. Um, and so the, those differences are really stark. So at Petra, site workers have these really specific recollections of defined locations of particular artifacts. Um, they have memories of uh, not only like where they were found, but the, the kind of stratigraphic context in which they were found. They have theories and hypotheses about what they were used for, um, and partly just due to the time period and the and the specific methodologies used at that site, the archival documents from the Temple of the Winged Lions are very very structured, and excavators weren't really encouraged to include their interpretations or to go beyond this sort of. Um, uh, like rote categories um, that they should record for every context. And so the site workers offer a lot of richness, I would say, that that isn't uh, included in the documentation because the documentation wasn't meant to accommodate fluidity and flexibility. Um, site workers at, at Petra, at the Temple of Long Lions, also have a lot of recollections of uh, the, the methods used. Um, so the, the spits uh, that they dug in when they dug in spits, um, the tools that they used for particular types of deposits, um, when they sifted and when they didn't. And a lot of the times that's not recorded in the archival materials either, simply because that wasn't solicited, it wasn't requested, um, it wasn't information that was requested in the in the documents. Um, at Tadalhuk, the site workers uh, have very similar um, knowledge to the excavators, which I think is a success of the community engagement efforts. You know, there's been a lot of work at Chattelhook to reach out to the community and um, hold days where we explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, 
as I said, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emphasis on um, bringing the local community in, and on uh, there's also a lot of ethnoarchaeological work at Chattelhook that has um, asked site workers to participate in uh, experimental archaeology projects or to contribute to our understanding of mud brick architecture. Um, and so the key distinction at Chattelhook is that site workers see themselves as experts on Neolithic lifeways because for so many years there's been a lot there have been research projects at Chattelhook focused on uh, eliciting information about possible traditional lifeways or um, foodways or the environment um, from the site from the from the local community members. Um, and so those are sort of kind of the key differences. But I also think it's worth recognizing that similarity is also evidence of expertise. Uh, and so I kind of, in the book, I show how both could be, uh, you know, we should, we should recognize both of those things as expertise. Um, and it's, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, so, so in addition to a lot of the systemic barriers that are in place that keep site workers from being considered knowledge production partners in the archaeological process. In your interviews, you you also noted uh, noticed the phenomenon that frequently a lot of the people you were talking to refused to consider themselves as archaeological experts or as having significant archaeological experience or expertise despite, like you said, years or or even in some cases decades working at sites and, and being part of archaeological excavations. So to, to use the title of the book and a question, why are those who shovel silent about their experience? Why are site workers not more demonstrative of, of their unique expertise? Yeah, thank you for this question, because this really is the key to the book. This is really like that second aha moment I had was trying to answer this question exactly, because I truly thought I would go in to both of these sites, introduce myself as an archaeologist working with like a current visible, presumably respected archaeological project, and everyone would say, I'm an expert, I'm an expert, let me tell you how I'm an expert, um, because that seems like what I would do uh, if, you know, I thought there was a possibility of, of getting a job or getting recognition or something. Um, I'm also a type A Gemini, and so, of course, that's <laughs> very natural to me to imagine that you would, of course, claim your, claim your knowledge and expertise nobody was uh like over and over again they were saying oh, I'm just I'm so simple I'm just a I'm just a Bedouin I'm just a goat herder you know and so that question why was really the driving question of the book um and the answer I found I mean no I did I couldn't really ask these people directly um because they were just there was just so much invested in denying their expertise but what I kind of put together is that along with telling me that they weren't experts they were also telling me all of these stories about archaeological projects they had worked on where they would get fired or demoted or somehow punished in another way for, for demonstrating their expertise. Like they would get replaced by their brother. They would get told, like, don't come to work tomorrow. We'll see you about the next day. They would have their pay docked. Um, and all of these things were happening when people would try and assert their expertise. So if they said you're digging in the wrong place or that bowl is Iron Age, not Bronze Age or whatever. Um, they they would they would have these experiences of being sent away, and some people put it really you know really directly for me. Um, one person mentioned that he had gotten a certificate of his like mastery of archaeological expertise, and I really thought like oh great my dissertation is written like I'll just show a picture of this certificate and like people have expertise like done. Um, but 
as soon as he brought it out, uh, he like had to go find it in a back room and he brought it out. And I was like, wow, so you must show this to all the archaeologists who come through. And he was like, no, I would never show it to anyone. I wouldn't want to seem arrogant. Um, and then another person I talked to uh, talked about the fact that he doesn't work on archaeological projects anymore at all. And he said it was because he had had these experiences so many times of being sent away uh, or or chastised or, yes, even like fired for correcting the archaeologist. Um, and I would, you know, and I, would, I kind of said like, uh, wow, like, you know, that's really, that's really extreme. Um, and when he was telling me the story, I was, I asked him, you know, do you, do you tell people when you have a better idea? And he was like, well, I learned not to, I don't do that anymore because I tried to do it a bunch of times. And people would say, uh, you're just a worker. We just brought you here to work. We didn't bring you here to ask questions, you know, sit down and, and be okay with that. Um, so I sort of put together these stories one after another of all of these different times that people had been sent away for, for challenging archaeological expertise on the part of the director. Um, and it just it kind of clicked into view that that, of course, there's this economy of inexpertise that's been created. Um, and that was particularly true at Petra. Um, it took a little bit of a different form at Chattelhook because Chattelhook is a community engaged site. Uh, they aren't really in the business of, of, of firing people for contributing to discussions. In fact, there's been a lot of work to encourage people to contribute to discussions. But a lot of that encouragement has been in the form of, of soliciting expertise, like I was saying before, that is very focused on Neolithic life ways and traditional practices like herding goats and um, baking bread in these, in these big ovens. Um, mud brick architecture. Um, and I'm not saying this to critique those initiatives, but I think people in Chattelhook had gotten the impression that that's, that's, the, that's the valuable knowledge that they held um, was, was to uh, associate themselves with the Neolithic community at Chattelhook and to, you know, sometimes they would overtly say, I'm a Neolithic woman, I'm a Neolithic person. Um, even though they don't claim any sort of genetic uh, or like um, like biological ancestry from the community of Chattelhook, I really think that they, there had been all of these financial opportunities from the archaeological project itself to pretend like they were Neolithic and therefore sort of um, simple and therefore like kind of anti-modern or anti-scientific. And so overall, my argument is that even on community-engaged projects like Chattelhook, which I really enjoyed being on, and I think and all of the individual initiatives that have happened have been um, really great, uh, fundamentally, the project doesn't change its labor management practices from what has been the norm in archaeology in this region for so long. And so when you're just doing individual outreach projects like 1111 uh, individually here and there, um, and you haven't really change the system in which you hire and pay people and the kind of job that you're hiring them for, then you're not challenging that dichotomy between physical and intellectual labor, even if you, you want to. Um, so until we really change the economic underpinnings of archaeological excavations, I think we're going to keep seeing the same thing that people are going to emphasize the lack of knowledge they have about science and about archaeology and about the past. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, this um, phenomenon you observed, which you have called lucrative non-knowledge, which I think is a great, great way to encapsulate this really unique phenomenon in archaeology, is so different from you know, that of that of the staff members who are working on archaeological excavations or those on the academic side of archaeology, where every little bit of experience gets its spot on the CV. Um, you know, it, it's just a vastly different <laughs> exactly. way of positioning yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I couldn't help but think about how my expectation of how workers would behave and respond to my questions was maybe forged through academic conferences where people are making questions that are more of comments and, you know, jockeying to, to to seem like the smartest person in the room. And like that, cause that's the culture of academia is to like out, out expertise people around you. Um, but archeological site isn't really that same space. Uh, that's not, you know, the, the business of academia is a different business from the business of archeological excavation right. and field work. So uh, that's, yeah, I think that's the, the one of the crucial findings. Yeah. If I can and, say and so in the book. <laughs> An important part of ethnography is flushing out your personal expectations of what you're what you're going to find. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about your methods a little bit. So you you had noted that this book is the culmination of combined years of ethnographic work um, and archaeological work as well um, in Turkey and Jordan, um, interviewing and living with the communities around Çatalhöyük and Petra. So how did you develop your your research plan and, and how did it change over the course of your research? Um, did your ap- approach to conducting these interviews changed as you learned more? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I lived in the dig houses associated with the contemporary projects of both sites. Uh, so in Petra, that's in the town of Wadi Musa and at Chattahook, it's actually on the archaeological site. And um, I at both sites I had a research assistant. I do speak both Turkish and Arabic, um, uh, but I'm I was working in these small rural communities, and it was just really helpful to have somebody who knew where to find people and could introduce me to them. So I wasn't just you know I wasn't doing a door to door survey. So I I it was just really great to have somebody who could uh, you know knock on a door and say like is Suleiman home, and then <laughs> you know it just really really helps uh, with that, um, and then. In Turkey, uh, my Turkish is not a, a rural Turkish, and so I, I did also have a translator in Turkey who helped me with conducting those interviews. Um, and in terms of how it changed over the time, it's a really great question because over time, I stopped introducing myself as an archaeologist, which at the beginning I thought would be this great like way in. People would be like, "Oh, you're an archaeologist? Like, let me tell you about archaeology," uh, which kind of did happen to some. To some extent, but there was always that dynamic of I think them were like being distrustful of me saying I'm an archaeologist now tell me all of your expertise because it was so different from past experiences they had had. Um, so I stopped introducing myself as an archaeologist. I stopped asking about um, expertise as as time went on. I, I sort of dropped that as like a terminology um, because people were so resistant to it. Um, once I got a sense of why people were resistant to it, I didn't need it. more uh, examples of people being <laughs> offended by the question. Um, and then I also, I, I, I use network analysis quite a bit in the book, um, which relied on kind of generating these lists of archaeological finds and methodologies, 
Um, and so I, I don't think it's very normal in our in ethnography to uh, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe it is, but I think ethnographic interviews or ethnographic conversations tend to be more open ended and tend to be more kind of rich and dynamic. But I always ask people the same question of like, what did you find and what methods did you use so that I could generate those kind of standardized lists that are necessary for network analysis. So that's also something I think that's a little bit unique to the methods that I use versus somebody who's maybe doing a fuller ethnographic study uh, that isn't quite as like targeted uh, in its goal. Sure. Yeah. I, I actually wanted to ask you about your use of network analysis. Like, like you mentioned this, I mean, I have never seen someone use network analysis before in an ethnography. Um, so could you give us a little bit of background on, you know, just what is network analysis and how did you use it as a useful tool for analyzing the differences between the knowledge of archeological staff and the knowledge of site workers and, and how the differences between how they understand these sites? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so network analysis is uh, a suite of techniques. Uh, it's not just one thing. Um, but in general, these techniques began in the 1930s and 1940s, when a lot of mathematicians and social scientists were wondering how they could study connections between people or connections between things. Um, and so there were a number of attempts to, uh, to visualize that and to measure that and to study that. It really took off much later in the 20th century. So in the 1970s, Stanley Milgram, who is famous for other studies, but he's also famous for his six degrees of separation study, uh, which some people may know about, but um, it's, it's, it's the study that came up with the idea that you're connected to everyone in the world by no more than six degrees. You know, you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows anyone in the world, um, six degrees. Uh, and the way that he did that study was that he and his uh, students or his research assistants um, sent out these packets to people kind of randomly chosen throughout the US and they were directed to send the package on to some to the person who they thought was the closest to this final address. Um, and what they found was that uh, those packages um, you know, found their destination much more quickly than they expected. And it led them to hypothesize that everyone is connected to everyone by, by no more than six degrees of separation. The interesting thing about that study is that, of course, you don't know who everyone in your social circle knows. Um, and so if you're asked to predict who's the most likely to know somebody else. So if somebody asked me like, okay, like this person in uh, South Korea, who do you think in your circle is most likely to know them? I don't have all the information necessary to make an accurate guess about that. So my favorite thing about the six degrees of separation study is that we're probably actually more closely linked than six degrees. Um, in any case, uh, we now have new technologies to measure that sort of thing. Um, that's also why we've sort of revised the six degrees of separation uh, hypothesis. So now we can actually develop um, these structural visualizations of how people are connected to other people um, or how flows happen between things. And so we use network analysis now to study all sorts of topics. So not just how people are connected to, pe to other people, like who knows who, um, but also we've used it for like electrical grids. We use it for epidemiology. Um, they've used it in... Um, like uh, international intelligence operations. Um, and the basis of it is that you're developing lists of people or things that are connected to each other 
on the basis of either a shared characteristic or a directional flow. So you're creating a graph of all of the things in the system or people in this system who are connected to one another. And then you can run a bunch of statistical analysis on it uh, that measure you know, who's the most connected or what's the most connected. You can detect the hubs. You can detect many communities. Um, you can uh, detect like kind of local power versus structural like influence over the network as a whole. And it helps to get a sense of like the big picture of these either social systems or, or um, networks of things. So the way that I used network analysis is that I connected site workers and archaeologists. I drew a line between them if they mentioned either the same find, the same archaeological method, or the same theory about an archaeological site. And I liked it because um, I, I just liked how, how visual and how structural, how big picture it really allowed me to get. Um, I wasn't, I was, I was able to be pretty sure based on statistics and based on, um, you know, this visual evidence that what I was finding wasn't, um, I don't know, it, it, that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't idiosyncratic. It wasn't ad hoc. Um, it was representative of the picture as a whole. And so when you see the network analysis of the Temple of the Winged Lion site workers and the site, the, the artifacts that they know about versus the network analysis, the, the, the positions of the uh, original fields team, the archaeological field team in that same network, you can see that the archaeological field team clusters towards the center and the site workers are literally and visually peripheral because they tended to remember fewer artifacts and fewer different artifacts than the, and, and different artifacts uh, than, the, than the original archaeological, than the, the, than the archaeological field team. Um, and so you can actually see and measure and detect uh, and provide evidence for the ways in which these labor management practices uh, shaped the project as a whole and shaped the creation of knowledge as a whole. So to me, the network analyses represent like the structure of knowledge uh, from these archaeological sites that's possessed either by former site workers or in the, the archival data itself. Um, and I don't think that I don't know. I, I I love ethnography and I love the richness of it. And I'm a big believer in storytelling. My early work is on fiction and narrative. But I what I like about archaeology is how mixed methods it is. And so I like network analysis for bringing together that quantity that that appreciation for quantitative data and storytelling that archaeology is so good at, in my view. Yeah, and it just shows that there's so much depth that you know the like you mentioned the the suite of not of um, methods that is um, network analysis has for new applications like tracking differences in knowledge uh, about a certain topic. So yeah, really, really, I think in ingenious use of, of that model there. Thank um, you so much. Are, are there any favorite memories from your time in the field? Um, in, maybe in an interview or particular experiences, uh, sharing meals with some of your interlocutors or learning someone's story? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think what I was finding at the time was very depressing to me. And so my favorite memories kind of come from outside of my interviews. I have favorite memories for the purposes of my research, but they're also sort of clouded by the fact that, uh, yeah, archaeology ha has been depressing. Like I remember the time when uh, the, uh, my interviewees were telling me in Petra that they knew that the, 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 that the team that I was researching 
they knew that Hammond's project was digging at night. Um, and I kind of couldn't believe that that was true. I couldn't believe that, that archaeologists would be digging at night. Um, I thought this was like a legend. Um, there's often suspicion in communities that live around archaeological sites that there's gold, that there's something good there that, that, that the archaeologists aren't telling them about. Um, and sometimes it's true that there's like more there than what they know about. But, uh, but the accusations of digging at night just seemed sort of like fantastical to me. And so I remember the interview that I did um, with uh, with somebody who had served as kind of a, a the, the governmental representative um, for the project for some years. And he very proudly told me that it was his idea to start digging at night. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's sort of a favorite memory research-wise because it confirmed something that I truly thought was a legend or that couldn't possibly be true. Um, and it was sort of, uh, you know, it, it made real this sort of fantasy um, in my head, but it's certainly not a favorite memory in terms of experience. Um, more in terms of my favorite time in the field, you know, there's a saying, uh, in Arabic, but I think it applies, um, it applied to my experience in Turkey as well, that they say that the guest is a prince when he arrives, uh, a prisoner when he stays, and a poet when he leaves. And so it means that they treat you like so well when you come and then you can't leave, like <laughs> you're sort of, uh, you know, you're being laden with gifts of tea and fruit, and desserts and dinner and all these things. Uh, and then you're a poet when you leave because what you say about your experience, uh, you know, you're supposed to kind of, um, or they expect that you will like uh, describe it in rich detail. And so I hope that I'm doing that um, justice. My experience in both sites was so generous and so hospitable. I have memories of like playing with kids, um, so many cups of tea, like endless, endless cups of tea, um, homemade mamul, which is like a date dessert. Um, in Shadowhook in Turkey, I mentioned one time that apricots were my favorite fruit. And then like every house I went to gave me like armfuls of apricots, like embarrassing to carry this amount of this amount of apricots. Um, I was like welcomed into every shop or every cafe in Petra. They would offer me anything from behind the, the bench. Um, so many dinners. Um, and then my favorite sort of brief story from my time in Petra specifically uh, was that one time I was running a race uh, in Wadi Rum, there was a 10K at midnight being held and I wanted to run it. And one of the, the requirements was to have a whistle. And I did not own a whistle. I did not bring a whistle to the fields for some reason. I don't know why that slipped my mind, but I did not have a whistle. So I had to go buy a whistle. So I went to one store and they were like, oh, we don't have a whistle. Go to the store across the street. So I went to the store across the street and they're like, no, go to the store diagonal from us. So I went to that store. They said, we don't have it. They sent me to another store. Um, I knew about a toy store in town, so I went to the toy store. They didn't have a whistle. And I was like, kind of, you know, dejected, but I'll find a whistle someday, you know. So I'm walking back to my house, which is at, up a big, big hill. So I'm really kind of like puffing in the heat, you know, really kind of feeling sorry for myself a little bit. And from behind me, I hear beep, beep, and there's a big truck. And they like this guy leans out and he calls out in Arabic, are you the girl who's looking for the whistle? <laughs> and so and he jumps out of the car and opens the back of the truck and like has a box of whistles, like so many whistles. He's like, how many do you need? Like 50, 100? And I was like, two? Like, I, I don't know, like eight, I guess, for my friends. I don't know. Um, and to me, it just represented how like tight knit the community is and how 
um, my experience of being in Jordan and also in Turkey, but really in Jordan, like everything comes together, everything works out in the end and people like notice you and are looking out for you. And I just always felt really like safe and protected and welcomed. And to the point where I could be looking for a whistle for like 25 minutes and then it just comes upon me just when I think, you know, all hope is lost. (laughs) The story of of my quest had spread through the community. Um, That sense of community is really strong. And if it's okay, Sam, I just want to just mention that um, Jordan has been hit really hard economically by COVID. Uh, and so there is a GoFundMe that an archaeologist, Leanne Bedal, is running to support the Bedul community, which is the community that really welcomed me so much when I was in Jordan. Um, and so it's searchable on GoFundMe. So it's to help the Bedul and Petra. I don't know if there's a way to to put it in like show notes or anything, but um, yes, yeah. send send me that link and I'll make sure it's included in the blog post that is associated with this episode. Okay, awesome. Yeah, it looks it looks like it's fully funded right now, but really people are are really. Uh, going hungry right now, which is sort of hard to imagine for how full and sated they kept me in the years that I was doing this work. So I'd really love to, yeah, to encourage people to support them because uh, Petra is only, um, yeah, Petra is what it is. That it's a hospitable place because of the people who live there. And so uh, whatever we can do as as a community to support them, I think, is really important. Of course, yeah. Thank you for sharing that and. You know, you were part of this community for so long, and and they welcomed you. It's it's good to um, you know advocate for them when once you're once you're you know a different part of it. Exactly. Um, so this book concludes with a call to change the way that archaeological projects across the Middle East can better invite their site workers to participate in multivocal knowledge production. So so how can archaeological projects actually change their relationship with local site workers? so that locals utilize the full extent of their archaeological expertise uh, as not just participants, but but partners. And, and you give one really example of photography uh, in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I, I really didn't want to write a book that was just critique and didn't offer hope or a way forward. Um, because I, I don't think this is a hopeless situation. I do think there's capacity for change. And so when I, I ran these um, not huge scale projects or uh, experiments. Um, I ran these, you know, multi-week, uh, multi-month experiments at Petra and at Chattelhook, where I gave the site workers um, cameras to document the site from their perspective. Um, and it was a really incredible experience because I, uh, I, I didn't expect it to map so well onto the sort of networks of expertise that I had documented at these two places. So it's at Chattelhook, a lot of the photos looked very similar to what the archaeologists, the photos the archaeologists had taken in the past, um, but not exactly. Uh, a lot of the photos from Chattelhook um, were of uh, like equipment by itself, which is something that we like flotation equipment, which is something that the site workers would see and experience that maybe most archaeologists wouldn't. Um, a lot of the photos from Chattelhook decentered the archaeologists, so unlike the ones in the photographic archive where the subject was at the center the site workers kind of put them off in the corner had them very darkly lit or something um so they just they looked similar but different to what the archaeologists had documented which is in a nutshell exactly what i had found about site workers expertise about the site that it was similar but different from what the archaeologists um had recorded over all these years 
Um, at Petra, the, the projects, uh, the, at Petra, the photos from the site workers were like totally different from what the archaeologists had taken. There were a bunch of selfies. Um, there were photos of the surroundings of the archaeological site instead of the site itself. Um, nothing was ever kind of clean and prepared. Um, there was there were like surveillance photos taken of people or institutions that were maybe not making great conservation decisions that the site workers were very inflamed by. Um, and so these photographic experiments to me showed that involving site workers in recording um, could be a potential way forward. I don't want to like overstate the potential of photography specifically, um, simply because I think there's a lot of ways that we could reimagine um, a site worker's role on an archaeological site. And that's really what I think the solution boils down to, is actually changing what we hire local workers for. Uh, what is the nature of the job? Um, so right now, we, I think, are still contending with this dichotomy between uh, manual and intellectual labor. And I think the more we bring those together in like in the actual job design, the job description and the job payment, if we are paying for both of those things at once. Um, I think it'll do a lot to redress uh, this imbalance and this exclusion. I think we also have to think really, really uh, carefully about the standards that we use for both pay and for dismissal. Um, you know, a lot of us have worked at will jobs where you can be fired for any reason. Um, but I think it's uncommon to be fired for doing your job well. And so I think having standardized um, or at least like understood and shared ideas about what, what constitutes grounds for dismissal in advance in a project um, is really important. I think we should implement pay scales based on expertise uh, that increase when you have more expertise <laughs> um, rather than, uh, you know, inadvertently decreasing the salaries of experts. Um, what I'm talking about overall is really just professionalization of the fields um, and starting to value intellectual contributions, not just socially or theoretically, but actually materially. Um, there are a lot of, uh, I, I think there's a lot of acceptance now within archaeology that community engagement is valuable uh, in general. Um, and there's a lot of talk about the need to listen to local communities. Um, but I don't think it's enough to just say that we're listening. I think we actually have to like literally put, put our money where our mouth is, uh, and, um, you know, pay, pay, pay locally hired experts to be experts. If that's, you know, if that's indeed what they are, um, which many of them seem to be. So, yeah. So I think it really boils down to that professionalization, uh, and material, material financial valuing of contributions. Right. I mean, one of the things you mention uh, in the close of the of the book is that par participation in the knowledge production process is one thing, but like you said, we have to listen. And the most immediate remedies um, for the struggles of site workers are things like better wages and more security in their job and consistent work and maybe benefits uh, as well. Those are things that have been a consistent call from people who work for and participate in archaeological excavations. So, but, and you, and you make a good, good connection between all of these different things and, and participating in the knowledge production process, getting, you know, more professionalization of the field and, and how those two things can work together to 
utilize the really unique experiences of those site workers and, and actually bring that out. So it's not something that they feel like they have to hide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks. I, yeah. I think, I think we have some models for, um, what professional, professional archeology span can look like. Um, I, I don't want to like be overly, uh, simplistic or glib about the situation for, uh, contractor commercial archaeologists uh, in any location. But I think there are some uh, places uh, like in Scandinavia, the UK, where this is, um, there are like standards for the career path, there are unions, um, and you have a contract and, you know, it's an official job. And I I think very often in places, especially in the global south, um, there is a tradition of hiring local community members you know, with just cash and, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to paint with an overly broad brush about this either, but, but in what I've, what I've seen about, uh, archaeological labor, not just in the Middle East, but also in, um, other post-colonial settings, this does seem to be a trend or a, or a, uh, a longstanding practice of sort of, um, you know, p- paying people casually, uh, and, uh, having extremely short-term contracts that, aren't going to be scrutinized, um, never need to be like physically written down, uh, and often kind of operate outside of, um, what the other standards for work might be in that, in that country or in that context. Um, I can tell you that in Jordan, there's like a length of work at which you're supposed to start paying social security and health insurance to the government. And I know for sure that there are projects that have worked for that length of time and have not paid, um, for those benefits, like you're saying. And so, uh, I, I just think that this is, um, you know, the, this professionalization of the field and thinking about all archaeological work as as intellectual uh, as well as physical, I think is going to be really important to actually making change in, in who gets to participate in knowledge production. Sure. Well, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Um... But just one last question, uh, what comes next? So you're currently at the American Center of Research in Jordan. Um, can you tease a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, so I am here um, conducting research for my next project, which is called Turning Over the Spade. Um, and it is uh, it is about literally what came next in Jordan after I finished this book. So as I was you know, typing up the final pages of this manuscript of why those who shovel are silent. Um, there were two startup companies in Jordan, two nonprofit corporations that started with the goal of um, redefining archaeological labor and certifying expertise and advocating for workers' rights. So one is called SELA. It's in the south of Jordan. It uh, was formed by um, five members of the community there. And then the other com- company is called Hand by Hand, and it's in the north. It's in Amul Jamal in Jordan. And so I have been following these companies for five years. Uh, well, six because of Corona. Uh, <laughs> I would have probably finished last year, but I wasn't in the cards. Um, and just seen in what ways they've been successful, what stopping points that they've encountered. Um, and I'm really excited about this project. I think it speaks a lot to cultural heritage in general. Um, and uh, why a lot of community engagement efforts, both in archaeology and cultural heritage, but also in like humanitarianism and in sustainable development, why these initiatives fail. Um, and uh, I think a lot of it comes down to um, some of the uh, 
kind of transnational legacies that I point to in the first book, um, but also some issues of, of identity, uh, gender, um, and of course, you know, broadly systems of power. So I'm, re I'm really excited about this one and that book. Uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping to finish that manuscript this year. So it should not be too, too long before turning over the spade comes out as like, honestly, kind of a sequel to this first book. I don't think academics normally get to write sequels, but I'm hoping this will be really my, uh, you know, the Terminator 2 to my Terminator 1, both good, but, you know, <laughs> upping the ante. <laughs> Great. So definitely something to look, look forward to in the near future. I hope so. So thank you again so much, Allison, for taking the time to share your thoughts and talk about your book. Why Those Who Shovel Are Silent is available now uh, from University Press of Colorado. Thank you to all those tuning in, and we'll see you again next time.